0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, August 19th. We begin with a look at the recent government involvement in the probing of high-profile businesses and organizations in our country. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? We discuss with a professor of political science from Carleton University. Then we head stateside for an update on news making headlines south of the border. We catch up with Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington bureau chief, for details on a busy week in the U.S., including this week's FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. The city wants to rethink 8th Street Southwest, why the area is being looked at for a refresh and what's the plan entail? We discuss with Shannon Reed, project manager for the improvement project. And finally, Monster Jam returns to tear up the Stampede Grandstand this weekend. What's it take to be a monster truck driver? We meet the man behind the wheel of the El Toro Loco truck, Elvis Linez. The Canadian government has recently and publicly held hearings to inquire about Hockey Canada's handling of sexual violence and the Rogers outage that took place last month. But is this focus on external officials uh, concerning? Uh, Jonathan Malloy, a political science professor from Carleton University, joins me now to break down the purpose of these parliamentary committees. A good morning to you, Jonathan.
1: Good morning, Andrew.
0: How typical, Jonathan, is it uh, for the House of Commons uh, House of Commons to to form committees to host inquiries into non-government entities? Is is this is this common?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of committee inquiries, so I couldn't give you exact breakdown. But the vast majority of inquiries, they focus on government. They focus on government government departments or government agencies. Uh, but what we've seen this summer is some interesting trends where they've, they've been focusing on hearings that really aren't strictly about government agencies at all. They're about uh, private agencies, such as Rogers, uh, Hockey Canada. And, uh, and that's, that's a trend that I you know those are important issues, but I'm not necessarily sure that's what the House of Commons should be uh, putting its focus on.
0: So what are the benefits? Can we list any of the benefits of these committees? Have we seen the fruits of their labors? I know it's early in these two stages, but can you give us an example of when we've seen a benefit of a committee like this?
1: Well, well, the committees do lots of uh, different benefits in terms of looking at, at public issues, at scrutinizing government actions. Um, but uh, in, in this example, and the example that I just gave there of, of Rogers and Hockey Canada, we had hearings on both of those uh, this, this summer. And uh, in each case, though, the, they were just finding out very high profile issues. Um, the the Rogers outage, obviously, in July, uh, and the Hockey Canada issues regarding um, uh the payoff of sexual uh, violence cases. Um, in each case, though, the the, the the committee didn't really go very far. They just sort of had hearings on these high-profile issues. They asked some questions. They got some media coverage, but they didn't really dig dig to the heart of the issue. And what a parliamentary committee should normally be doing is doing a more you know a more sort of deep dive on on issues, looking particularly at again at, at, at government issues, things like that, uh, and not just sort of doing a quick hit for a few days on a high-profile issue.
0: Can you see some, some some negatives when it comes to the government getting involved in probing, you know, these organizations?
1: It, it, yeah. Well, there certainly is. It's it's, it's 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 concerning, I'd say. I mean, they said as I just mentioned, the examples I just gave there—they're very high profile, they're important to Canadians. So there are they are certainly um, uh, there's there's stuff that Canadians want to know. So it's reasonable that that parliamentarians uh, want to get into that. But they said, like that's the parliamentarians are separate from government. The the, the the job of parliament is to is to scrutinize government itself. Uh, and here the parliamentarians are sort of ranging more more widely. And so even though the, the examples I gave, I can certainly see why parliament's looking at that. Uh, you wonder how. How far that's going to go? Are they going to start looking at any sort of public issue that's that's of concern, mm-hmm. even if it's not really tied to, to to government, to you know the use of tax dollars, to the you know, the, the appropriate use of laws, etc. Uh, it's it's pretty wide ranging.
0: Well, with, when we talk about the Hockey Canada and Rogers inquiries, they were made public, allowing open discourse around the topics. What does this mean for the future of committee inquiries? Can we expect to see this trend grow and seeing an openness and and allowing the public to take part?
1: Well, I, I could, I could, I could, I could see an ex that's what i'm concerned about is that it, it's kind of a slippery a slippery slope and so it means you know, i think parliamentarians i think it, I, I want to defend parliamentarians as saying that they're very tuned to what, what's important to canadians and uh these are issues where they they want to get to the heart of things the so committees can convene much more quickly than say at, say a judicial committee of inquiry uh and parliamentarians are very nimble at sort of getting to the main issues and things that are most important to canadians um so i mean that it's, a, it's all sort of good at least in, the, in a short-term way um but again, I think it deflects from the sort of the more heavy lifting work that I think committees should be doing. Uh, so just to give another example, another committee this summer is looking at the, um, the RCMP involvement in the, uh, the Nova Scotia shootings, and particularly the role of the RCMP commissioner in whether or not she uh, cooperated with the Trudeau government um, in terms of uh, its gun control agenda. Uh, and So a committee is getting into those details, or having very intricate hearings on that, and that's an area where you know, there's questions about political interference. Uh, in the RCMP. Uh, to me, that's what a committee should be doing. But, you know, that's that's much more detailed. It's much more complicated and, and not as high profile as having a quick, quick hearing on the Rogers outage.
0: Speaking with uh, Jonathan Malloy, Professor of Political Science from Carleton University. And, uh, Professor, I'm wondering if you can give us some kind of a comparison on how our nation and how we're dealing with this, with these inquiries, and again, open and uh, giving uh, an uh, an opportunity for the public to get involved to some extent, how do they compare to other nations when it comes to governments, you know, probing, you know, private businesses or non-government organizations? Do we have a, a parallel that we can look at?
2: Well, I mean, the closest
1: parallel is in Britain, uh, where we, of course, have a similar parliamentary system to Britain, and uh, British, British House of Commons committees also are, are, are quite active. Uh, I think the big difference between British and Canadian committees is that British committees tend to stay non-partisan on on all issues. So when Britain is holding uh, hearings on, say, a, a, gov- a government you know, agency or problem like that, and often the government backbenchers themselves ask some of the toughest questions of ministers uh, in a way that's different in Canada. In Canada, any kind of ho- high-profile issue, um, the government MPs uh, end up defending the government on the committee all the time. So, if we, I just mentioned that RCMP issue there, uh, the government MPs are spending most of their time defending the government rather than asking tough questions of it, uh, and, and that's because they'll get in trouble if they, if they don't that way. In Britain, uh, British MPs certainly are more are more free to uh, to criticize the government to range more widely, Canadians are more, are, are more constrained that way, and so that's why I think Canadian MPs are starting to go into these these external issues like, like you mentioning Rogers, uh, where they don't really have to break down over partisan lines. So the, the government and opposition MPs can work together uh, in beating up Rogers together. Uh, so I mean that's that's good for them, fun for them, uh, but again I think the more serious work is when MPs should really be scrutinizing government itself.
0: Very interesting conversation, and we'd like to thank you for your time, Jonathan. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: That is Jonathan Malloy, professor of political science at Carleton University. Seven ten mornings with Sue and Andy, right here on 770 CHQR. Following the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, it has been revealed that dozens of boxes of material have been removed from his possession. With details on that and all the news from the U.S., we're joined now by Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. Good morning to you and happy Friday, Jackson.
2: Hi, Andy. Happy Friday.
0: Well, when it came down, we we did know that boxes and materials had been removed from Trump's estate. Unclear to exactly what the contents were. What can you tell us as we're, we're days away now from this removal? What was in those contents of those boxes?
2: Yeah, as best we know, the sort of classification of them uh, is that uh, many of them were considered top secret. Some of them were classified to a level which means that they're only supposed to be handled or viewed in specialized secret government facilities known as a SCIF where you can make sure that there's no external surveillance of them. And what's coming into focus here is that there were 11 sets of those classified documents removed with about uh, 10 other boxes from Mar-a-Lago. The FBI and Department of Justice were deeply concerned about these materials existing outside of the secure facilities where they're supposed to be kept. And I think the sort of unanswered question at this point, Andy, is whether the search of Mar-a-Lago was about a prosecution of Trump or those close to him for the handling of these classified documents, or whether it was simply an attempt to recover those documents to make sure that they were safely and securely stored.
0: Let's talk about the significance of a raid like this. Have we seen anything quite comparable to this at that presidential level in recent memory?
2: No, nothing like this has ever happened. In fact, the laws that these documents are protected under uh, the Presidential Records Act, that was brought in after Richard Nixon and Watergate, because there was a concern at uh, Richard Nixon's time that he was going to abscond with White House documents and his recordings from the White House. And so Congress rushed to pass this act to protect and preserve presidential records. Now, some of these records uh, seem to extend beyond simply White House presidential records to the classified realm. The Washington Post has even reported that they may uh, include classified documents about uh, nuclear weapons secrets so really kind of a question as to what's going on here but no no modern president has ever faced any sort of accusation like this before
0: what does this mean or does this have any bearing or, or, or where do we see it going as far as influencing or affecting uh, president Don- donald trump's political future you know there's been talk about him throwing his hat in the ring and uh, next go round. Uh, does this change anything at this point
2: You know, if anything, it may actually accelerate Trump's interest in running for office and announcing that he's running for office uh, because he may feel that if he can announce that he's a presidential candidate even two years out here, uh, that it will somehow make him immune from prosecution uh, by, you know, essentially suggesting that anything that comes at him is politically motivated. That sort of seems to be the implication right now, uh, but, you know, not clear if that will impact his timing or not. There is, though, also a sense within the Republican Party that, uh, you know, maybe Trump may become too toxic if prosecution continues. Remember, he's facing legal troubles here on five or six different fronts. It's not just about these documents. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, wait and see when it comes to Trump and his future. But in the short term, the effect of all this is that it has really galvanized Republican support around him.
0: All right, we talked just briefly there about the political future, perhaps, of Donald Trump. How about the political future of another name that's been making the rounds this week, and that is Liz Cheney, you know, suffering a defeat at the hands of a a Trump-endorsed candidate. What about the future of Liz Cheney? Where do we see that going?
2: Yeah, not a real surprise that she lost her uh, primary in Wyoming. I think it's pretty clear that the Republican Party at this point is very much the party of Trump. And if you're not willing to endorse him, you are not uh, going to be endorsed by him, which means Republicans won't vote for you in the primaries. Um, Of course, Liz Cheney's work on the January 6th committee has really made her persona non grata within the Republican Party. That said, she knew she was going to lose. And I think what she's doing is actually teeing up a longer term political play here. It's quite possible she will run in 2020 for uh, for the presidency not clear if as a republican or as an independent but she will run as somebody if she does who is you know committed to democracy and upholding elections and countering trump's lies about a stolen election in 2020
0: let's switch gears talk health and specifically monkeypox, which is continuing to make headlines on our side of the border how about down south what's the monkeypox situation looking like
2: yeah, I mean, it continues to be spreading here. Uh, it, of course, continues to be a real concern that, um, you know, it feels like the, the window of opportunity to, to stop this from spreading widely may have actually closed or passed because the rollout of vaccines has effectively stalled here in the United States. You know, they, they didn't procure as many as they needed. In some places, like here in Washington, D.C., they're now uh, rationing doses, essentially, and giving people smaller amounts of dose uh, as a temporary protective measure. And, of course, you're now starting to see cases, uh, you know, still rare but cases pop up uh at the occasional you know daycare for example or in a child or even people's pets and so I think there's a real concern about where this goes next well
0: from monkeypox to coronavirus virus and covid-19 announced earlier this week that first lady Jill Biden had contracted covid-19 what can you tell us about her condition
2: Yeah, uh, much like uh, uh, President Joe Biden, she seems to have a mild case and is isolating. Of course, Biden uh, himself had it a few weeks ago and actually had one of those rebound cases where he caught it took Paxlovid, which is the antiviral for it, uh, tested negative, and then a few days later tested positive and had to end up isolating for for a couple of weeks there. Uh, He is now back to being considered a close contact of Jill Biden. Uh, But, uh, you know, the CDC has sort of relaxed its guidelines here at this point. Uh, They're really saying you don't need to isolate for possible exposure anymore. And there is sort of a sense that uh, people are now sort of trying to move past the pandemic as best as possible.
0: Yeah, and obviously... The pandemic and uh, the happenings over the past uh, 30 months or so affecting the economy and uh, reports that the U.S. economy is slowing and there's speculation that there could be a recession by the end of the year. What are, what are you hearing as far as the slowing and uh, the potential for a recession?
2: Yeah, the housing market has certainly slid into a recession here. Um, you know, uh, sales are down about 20% over this time last year. Um, but it's not clear that there's actually going to be a massive recession or if it could be short and shallow, as they like to say. You know, The inflation rate is finally slowing down, uh, and there is a sense that things are sort of maybe getting to a healthier place here in the uh, post-COVID era. So kind of a wait-and-see attitude here. I think the economists are a bit confused here because, of course, you've got – Record low unemployment. You've got interest rates ticking up, but housing rates not ticking up at the same amount. So, lots of factors in play here.
0: Thank you so much for your time, and have a great weekend, Jackson. We appreciate it.
2: Have a great weekend.
0: That is Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. <laughs> Think Eighth Street Southwest. What does Calgary's Greater Downtown plan? look like as far as uh, being back into the core and bringing vibrancy back. With details, we're joined by Shannon Reed, project manager for the 8th Street Southwest Public Realm Improvement Project. Good morning to you, Shannon. Good morning, Andrew. Well, let's uh, get some clarification because I think that in the past when we've talked about 8th in Calgary, it's 8th Avenue, it's Stephen Avenue. We talk about a reimagining or bringing some vibrancy back to Stephen Avenue, 8th Avenue. But when we say 8th Street Southwest, can you paint a picture of of where we're talking about and why it's significant and and needs some reimagining?
3: Yes. Um, 8th Street Southwest is uh, located between the Bow River and 17th Avenue. Um, It is a a key uh, neighborhood corridor and connector between downtown and the Beltline. Um, It's also located um, in the western uh, half of downtown which has been uh, hardest hit by office vacancies so the greater downtown plan which was approved in 2021 it highlights 8th street as a, a priority for public space improvements and an important project in revitalizing this area of downtown
0: so it's a target it's important it's under the the microscope right now uh, what is the issue right now is it uh, more vibrancy you want more foot traffic down there what, what what's the goal
3: Yes, we see the street is really not being used to its full potential. Um, we're looking to, in, to bring greater vibrant, community vibrancy to the area and improve the pedestrian experience, making it a complete street uh, and a safe and accessible corridor for all users of the area.
0: So what does something like this look like? Uh, you know, I don't want to trivialize it, but are we talking about implementing some plant pots, beautification, or, you know, reducing some lanes? What, what's the plan involved?
3: Well, it's a bit early in in the project to get into the real details of how it will look in the end. That's what we're going to be really looking at as part of the RFP process. Mm -hmm. But what it means is looking at um, opportunities for creating spaces for residents, visitors, um, locals to spend time in and enjoy the street. Um, It could be widening sidewalks. It could be looking at, yes, street tree planting, those type of um interventions to improve the pedestrian experience in, in the area
0: and i would think if you're improving the pedestrian experience and the, the beautification and you know, making it more kind of user-friendly that might have uh, some you know kind of a shot in the arm for businesses some kind of a positive for businesses is that something within the plan to have more you know pedestrian accessible businesses
3: yes that's that's part of the idea with um bringing vibrancy to the community into the areas to create opportunities for businesses um, and residents to to utilize the corridor in the best way that uh, meets their current needs um, and uh, brings vibrancy to the area
0: you mentioned that the improvement project is in the early stages can you give us shannon some kind of a timeline ahead and, and when you expect to see some movement some uh, you know visual changes
3: yes uh so as I mentioned, the project is currently out for RFP and we're mm-hmm. looking to have a, a design firm on on board for this November. Um, and then following that we will uh, be looking to complete the first phases of uh, first phase of design um, this spring and then uh, we're looking to be construction ready for 2024.
0: Good stuff. thanks for the update. thanks for the discussion, Shannon. We appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me. That is Shannon Reed, project manager for the 8th Street Southwest Public Realm Improvement Project. Ah! Ah! The Calgary Stampede Grandstand plays host to Monster Jam. Returning to Calgary this weekend with details, we're joined by the driver of the El Toro Loco Truck, Elvis Linez. Good morning to you, Elvis
4: good morning how are you doing today
0: good excited monster jam is back love our monster trucks in calgary like to get up close and personal that's what you're all about i want to ask you though first of all i mean hey if i decide to be an accountant i know you know which path to take to 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 get my degree if i want to become a plumber i go to trade school how does one become a monster truck driver elvis how did you get into this
4: Hey, man. So there's uh, people that come from very different backgrounds all over, you know, uh, all over the place. Uh, so I actually got started as a fan, um, you know, went to a bunch of shows as a kid. Uh, this was my passion. And so at the age of 15, I Facebook messaged one of the drivers, uh, asked him if I could come out and help out and, you know, work on the trucks or, you know, just make them look good for the pit party. Uh, and he allowed me to do that and uh, did that consistently for three years with other teams. And grew more mechanical knowledge as I went on, but I also networked myself and met the right people. And at the age of 18, I got the opportunity to go to what we call the Monster Jam University, (laughs) which is essentially our training grounds and our uh, auditioning uh, grounds uh, for anyone, you know, that gets invited out. And, uh, you know, it's very crazy and very surreal, but, uh, you know, thanks to all that, I'm now living, you know, living out a dream.
0: What makes a good monster truck driver, Elvis? What makes you successful? So I think
4: that, you know, there's different uh, – that, that's definitely a very uh, broad answer because it can go many ways. You know, um, there's people out there that are fantastic drivers, um, you know, and communicate really great with the crowd. Uh, but there are also people out there who are just genuinely very well-liked um you know by everyone you know that comes around them and gets to meet them uh but you know i'm someone that i try to do a little bit of both you know i try to be really good behind the wheel and i try to be really good on the microphone and be really good with our fans uh and you know i think that's only because i grew up as a fan that i i'm i feel like i can reach out to the crowd um and uh and i can communicate with them very well and also you know being a spanish speaker being Latino also is a you know advantage point for me so i can communicate to you know people who speak spanish as well um but with that i also try to represent people that you know that don't look like anyone that's out there on the track you know that they too can get to that uh point of their life because at some point you know in my life i was a kid looking out at the track where there weren't any drivers that looked like me so uh Mm. that's something that i tried to inspire and uh hopefully you know i can motivate people you know of uh you know, from all over the world to do what they want to do.
0: Who should, if you've never been to a monster jam show, who should come out Elvis? Who would you you, use your chance to sell? Who should come and check it out?
4: I think it should honestly be our harshest critics. People that say they don't like monster trucks. Uh, I think that they need to come out here and give us a chance and uh, come see what we can do with these monster jam trucks. Now, you know, it's very crazy. It's, It's things that, and a half thought, you know, 10 years ago were possible. Heck, not even five years ago. Uh, we're doing moves that, you know, are absolutely surreal and and things that honestly, our trucks, you know, we're pushing the limits of these trucks and the, of ourselves. Uh, so you guys definitely need to come out. I know it's going to get crazy. There's two shows, two different opportunities for you guys to come out. Early in the day, you know, we start at 3 p.m. So you guys definitely, you know, don't have any excuses to not, <laughs> you know, be there. You guys definitely need to go to monsterjam.com. Get your tickets, come out, support us, because it's going to be awesome.
0: Well, we'll direct people to MonsterJam.com and remind everybody that it's Saturday and Sunday, August 20th and 21st at the Stampede Grandstand. And we'll be looking for the El Toro Loco truck, driven by one Elvis Linez. Thank you for your time, Elvis.
4: Thank you so much for having me, man. I can't wait to be out there. can't wait to see everyone out there.